It was 10 years ago that Grape Encounters Radio was born inside a crumbling old barn far off the beaten path in California's Central Coast wine country. Host David Wilson and his team had to keep it underground. After all, they were going to present wine in a very different, a very unpretentious way. The wine snobs were not going to like this one bit. There would be protests, tar and feathers, Supreme Court challenges, and more. The Grape Encounters team was going to challenge the old ways and fight to return wine to the masses without fear of guilt for not knowing how to pronounce terroir or sommelier or gewürztraminer or viognier. This week, Grape Encounters marches forward with the next 500 episodes for wine enthusiasts from every walk of life. Over the past 10 years, we've learned one very valuable lesson. People dig what we've been sharing. Heck, even the Supreme Court justices are having more fun with their wine. Except one or two who like beer. Today, we're off and running with the next 500 episodes of Grape Encounters Radio. A very different kind of wine show that is as much about you as it is about what you have in your glass. We're here to make wine more fun. So buckle up for one heck of a ride as we uncork the next decade of Grape Encounters. And it is time for your weekly Grape Encounter. And man, have we been having fun the last couple of weeks as we celebrated just two weeks ago our 500th episode of Grape Encounters. That's 500 episodes and that's 10 years of being contrarian wine consumers here on this show. You know, I look back to 2018 and all the guests that we had on. And there was one guy that was just a standout. I, I think I had more fun on that show than any other show. I said at the end of the show, you can go back and check me if you think I'm lying. But I said at the end of the show, I got to get this guy back on. We didn't get to talk about all the things we wanted to talk about. He's become one of my best buddies in the whole wide world. And I feel like it's like I feel so grateful to have this man in my life because he's an amazing winemaker. He's an amazing artist. He's a philosopher. He's handsome. And and he, he gets award after award after the stuff that he does. And and so I am I'm going to introduce him in just a second, but I'm just going to tell you this. This episode is going to be called Pinot Prizes, Pigs and Packaging. And that's because those four things, I think, embody my guest today, Tom Rodriguez. Tom, welcome to Grape Encounters. It's been, what? I don't know, like six months, dude. Hey, buddy. Hey. I can't believe Yeah, I know. It's way too long, David. And let me just say, first of all, congratulations on the 500 episodes. That's an epic milestone in your Grape Encounters radio career. And I'm happy to say that I was in that group and that I'm now 501. No, you're 502. You're 502. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Oh, I guess that's okay. Well, anyway, congratulations, buddy. Two is bigger than one, right? That's that's true. You're right. You're right about that. All right. Tom Rodriguez is the founder, the owner, the winemaker, the brainchild behind Artivino. And they are in the lovely Anderson Valley. By the way, I got to imagine that right now, the Anderson Valley, if you can get a boat out there... <laughs> 
is really green right now. It's one of the greenest places on earth <laughs> yeah. during this time of year, right? How how lovely is it? How oh, lo- it's well. If the sun would come out, you'd act, you'd actually be able to see it. But we've had oh my god, probably over ten inches of rain in the last forty eight hours. Is that in the Navarro cool. River? Yeah, the Navarro River is flooded. The Highway 128 is closed on the way to the coast and has been closed for the last few days. I had to run over to the coast for a meeting yesterday, and I had to go up to Ukiah and over Highway 20. It took me two hours to get to where I would want to be in normally about an hour. But there's water flowing everywhere. We need the water. Uh, I'm not complaining at all. It's a good time of year to rain, and it's California. We we love it up here. And once the sun comes out, it's, I'll send you some pictures. It's spectacular. So is this the official into the drought. I mean, it's been, I mean, we've had some fairly good years here the last couple of years in California. You know, nothing spectacular, but this has been a gully washer this year. It has been a gully washer. I don't know if they can technically say it's the end of the drought because we had a drought for five years prior to the last couple of years. Um, let, let me just say that our res- reservoirs are full and the snowpack in the Sierras is huge. It's snowing again. They got six feet in the last 24 hours and they anticipate another six feet this weekend. There's already 22 feet on the ground. So I think what we're going to have is some of the weather people will say it's probably the end of the drought, but I think time will tell because we're also having warmer temperatures during the growing season. Last year, we had 10 days over 100 degrees, which was uh, unusual. So uh, I'm just happy to say that I'm grateful for the rain. And I think you're going to be getting some of this rain here pretty quick. I've got my umbrella out. It is out and ready to go. (laughs) But let's talk about Good. let's talk about Pinot for a second because as everybody who listens to this show knows, I am a Pinot curmudgeon. There are so many Pinots out there that I just dislike. You've been to my shop, so you know I have exiled the Pinots to the white wine section, right? And that's because I just you know there's so much bad Pinot out there. <laughs> yes. And 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 you poured me your Pinots, and you have several, and I'm like, oh. Well, maybe I don't hate Pinot so much. And I noticed, so the other day I'm like in the store and I'm counting, you know, how many Cabernets do we have? How many Merlots do we have? How many Chardonnays do we have? How how many Pinots do we have? What? We have more Pinot than anything else in the store. Heaven forbid. And actually, a bunch of them are yours, actually. And I'm not doing an infomercial for you. So forget about it if you think that's going to be the case here. But but you changed my Pinot world. What is it that people should be looking for in a Pinot? And I'm talking about people who don't like Pinot or think they don't like Pinot. What is it? What are you doing? Because And we're going to talk about this in the next segment. But because you've just won some very serious awards. We'll get into that in a second. But what are you doing that is really bucking that trend of just, you know, sort of weird, strange, unpalatable peanuts? Well, thank you, David. Um, I think it's funny, too, because my next door neighbor uh, grows Pinot. Um, when I first moved here in 2001, he wanted to sell me some fruit. And I said, why would I want to make Pinot? Everybody makes Pinot up here. Well, that was my first year, Greenhorn. Now I make three different Pinots in places in California to grow Pinot, the Anderson Valley. <clears throat> and what uh, makes my Pinot different than others is being a Portuguese heritage in a fruit farming family back background, my grandfather taught me to get everything ripe and the rest was easy. And he grew apricots and prunes 
prunes and plums and prunes and stuff and made some homemade wine. But he, he had a really good concept and that was to get the fruit ripe. And so what I do, 80% of the winemaking is done in the vineyard. It's how you grow your grapes. And we do uh, mostly, we are sustainable and mostly organic, but occasionally we have to use some products that aren't considered organic, but very rare. But what I do is I, I wait until the fruit is, uh, is ripe. I don't judge um, the grapes by the sugar content, which a lot of winemakers do, which is called bricks, B-R-I-X. Right. That's how you measure sugar, sugar in a grape or any kind of fruit. So two weeks prior to when I think the grapes are going to be ripe, I start walking the vineyards and I'm tasting the fruit. I'm tasting the grapes on the bottom of the cluster, the ones in the shade, the ones in the sun, all throughout the vineyard, you know, just doing random sampling. And I'm walking through tasting them. I'm putting grapes in baggies and collecting to get a collective bricks reading at the end of my walk. And what I'm mostly looking for is the flavors in in my mouth and also the seed color. And when I get 80% brown seeds, that tells me the fruit is ripe because the heat of the sun can raise the sugar in the grape. It gets hot, it produces more sugar, and so therefore you can get these spikes of, of sugar. And in the old days, people would, would harvest on October 4th because that's when their father harvested and that's when their grandfather harvested and that's what you did. Well, nowadays, winemakers are more like chefs. You could give uh, five rows out of one vineyard to five different winemakers and you're going to have five different wines. So so let me ask you this, and we only have like 30 seconds, so we'll take a break and we'll come back and talk about this more, but where does that Pinot funk come from that is so predominant in so many Pinots that is such a put-off to a lot of people? It's that rotten leaf forest floor thing. You know, that's not a dominant characteristic in your wines. I don't like it. Yeah, no, I th- I think that's picking the grapes unripe and the, the type of clones that you're growing and with barrel selection. So I, I'm aware of that very much. When I first started making Pinot, three months, and when I was crushing it, it smelled like juicy fruit. It was delicious, you know, and then two months later in the barrel, I opened the barrel and I thought, who put their gym socks in, in the barrel? And it goes through a real <laughs> funky period where, you know, the, yeah. the aroma of the, of, <laughs> of the grape, it's just, it it's not pleasant. It doesn't go through, uh, a, so, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't go through a funky period. It just <laughs> It just tastes terrible from that point on. Tom Rodriguez, he is the founder, owner, winemaker at Art Divino, and he's a famous artist, by the way. We're going to get into that a little bit more, and we're going to talk about some of the awards that Tom has just picked up. Ooh, Tom, you have really racked him in, buddy boy. I'm really proud of you. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. You're listening to Grape Encounters Radio with your host, David Wilson. We've got 500 episodes under our belt, and we've barely scratched the surface, which is why you'll never find wine in the short subject section of your library. It seems like a day doesn't go by that someone doesn't tell me how lucky I am to be able to taste the multitude of wines that I get to try as part of my job. And while that certainly is true, what is also true is that a great number of wines that I do taste just don't cut it. That's why it gives me so much pleasure to tell you about the wines from Peak Ranch, made in the San Ynez Valley on the central coast of California. As exciting as these wines are, I'm especially proud of the fact that they're produced by my oldest friend of all time, John Wagner, along with his charming wife, Jill. John was always the smartest kid in school, and I was always just a tad bit jealous of his determination to be the best. 
So when I found out that he was the producer of these utterly fantastic wines, I wasn't the least bit surprised. From their remarkably elegant Pinots to their perfectly balanced Chardonnay and luscious Syrahs, it's no surprise that the wines produced at Peak Ranch are simply as good as it gets, and they have the scores to prove it. Log on to peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. You can buy their wines online, which means it'll be the best time you ever spend on the Internet. Go to peakranch.com. Ten years ago, I created Grape Encounters Radio while living in breathtaking Lake Arrowhead. Perched about an hour above the Southern California metropolis in the majestic San Bernardino National Forest. Lake Arrowhead is a place where wine lifestyle flourishes, imaginations run wild, and people come from around the world to discover a more peaceful and re-energizing way of life. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Lynn B. Wilson, a bona fide leader in resort real estate sales. From charming alpine cottages to stunning estates on the shores of shimmering Lake Arrowhead, Lynn B. Wilson & Associates have been changing lives for decades. If you truly want to live on top of the world, Lynn B. Wilson & Associates can show you how. They'll even host you in luxury accommodations while you explore the limitless possibilities. Log on to lynnbwilson.com. That's lynnbwilson.com. Live the life you imagine. Welcome back to Grape Encounters Radio, broadcasting from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in idyllic Atascadero, California. Did you know that our studio is built in one of America's top-rated wine bars? You know what that means, don't you? Yep. When we uncork a new episode, you can uncork something very special indeed. If there was ever a Renaissance man that Ernest Hemingway and Leonardo da Vinci would appreciate, he would be my guest today, Tom Rodriguez. He is the owner, founder, he is the winemaker, he is the thought leader at Artavino, and they're in the Anderson Valley. And and by the way, if you don't know where the Anderson Valley is in California, it's become one of the preeminent uh, Pinot regions, and other wines as well, but Pinot is really big there. If you go up above Santa Rosa, above Sonoma, you go to Cloverdale, you hang a left and you head toward Mendocino, and I don't know, you get, what, Tom, midway out there, and you're in Yorkville, and you'll see Tom out there selling bags of oranges on the street corner to supplement his wine income. <laughs> uh, yes, we are 20 miles inland from Cloverdale. It's from Cloverdale to the Mendocino coast is 56 miles, so I'm at the 36.1 mile marker. So you're kind of like two-thirds, is that right, about two-thirds of the way from the coast, something like that, or or three-quarters of the way from the coast to the 101? Correct. Okay. All right. We were talking... Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. We were talking about Pinot and, and making good Pinot, and I was launching my regular, you know, once-a-month assault on Funky Pinot. Funky, funky Pinot. Funky, funky Pinot. Anyway, uh, you don't make Funky Pinot, and I, I take it you don't like Funky Funky Pinot either. I don't like Funky Pinot, no. 
not a fan. So what is the secret to yours? Because, all right, let's let's jump in. Let's jump ahead of ourselves a little bit now, Tom. You just picked up some major awards. Go ahead and, and flaunt them, Tom. Well, first of all, let me just say, I tell people in the tasting room, A, if you need an award to drink wine, you should be drinking beer. Okay. You should just trust your own palate. But but we do enter contests and competitions just to see where we're at. And also, it, it gives people an idea of ty- uh, kind of wine and the quality of wine that we're making here. So I enter a number of competitions. One, um, which is our local competition, the San Francisco Chronicle Wine Competition, because it takes place in Cloverdale, the judging. And it, you know, there's there's over 6,000 wines that are entered in this competition. And we just picked up a gold medal in, the, in our estate Pinot Noir, um, our first vintage, our 2017 vintage of our estate fruit, uh, which we're very proud of. And then we make the uh, Lost Creek Vineyard Pinot, which is my next door neighbor. And we picked up a gold medal in the American Fine Wine Competition. And our estate Chardonnay just won the gold medal also in the American Fine Wine Competition. And our uh, Zinfandel won the double gold in the American Fine Wine Competition competition. So we um, uh, we also do the inter- international and the state fair and such too. Well, you, you make the San Francisco Chronicle competition sound a little small, but it actually is one of the most prestigious competitions in the country. I mean, it's a really big competition that so, I think if, if you look at the results from that competition, you can rely on those results. Good judges. Yes, very good. In fact, the Yorkville Highlands Appalachian Group did a private event uh, for a little reception for the wine judges at the Chronicle competition this year. And it was really a nice event. We got to be up and close with the judges and a number of the judges remembered some of the wines I did in the early 2000s and, and were very um, supportive of, of uh, our Tavino and, and our wines. And it was great to see them all in one location. And I was sort of going to a wine tasting during the wine competition. It seemed a little redundant, but that's what these people do. It's their life. And they're judges from all over the world or all over the country. So it, it was it was a, uh, really exciting to meet some of the new judges. By the way, when you find really good award-winning Pinot, you're going to find really good award-winning Chardonnay. And I'll tell you, without a question of doubt in my mind, the Chardonnay that you're making is just off the charts. And it's a funny thing, and I'm going to say this, this it's going to sound a little weird, but that wine hit me wrong the first time I tasted it. I don't know if it was that I had a garlic and bubblegum omelet that morning or whatever the case. And and when I first tasted it, it didn't thrill me. And ever since, every time I've tasted that wine, I just go bananas for it. I think it's one of the really best Chardonnays to come out of California and the award I think proves it and I mean truthfully the you know the judges of these competitions they're very competent I mean the big competitions get really good judges and and that Chardonnay is really good so I'm sorry to say that you know I misjudged it initially and then you know it's what I drink now it's the Chardonnay that I drink that's fantastic and it's my favorite varietal that I make I um, people really? ask me all the time what's your favorite varietal yeah it's my go-to wine the Chardonnay will stand up to a piece of meat uh, um, well balanced. It's made in a Burgundian style, surly, which means it's the lees, which is the sediment, is stirred in the barrel once a month for six to ten months. And I use native yeast as well, like I do the Pinot. And I, I grow the old Winty clone, which is a clone that was developed in the 70s. It was planted here in the early 80s. And it's known for its incredible quality, but a very low yielding fruit. So the 
the growers typically don't plant Winty clones anymore because it, it only yields two to two and a half tons per acre, where seven, six, and seven, nine clones are six to 11 tons an acre. So if you're a grower, you want fruit. You don't want necessarily quality. You just want to grow a bunch of fruit because you're being paid by the ton. Me being a grower and a winemaker, I'd rather make less good wine than just more mediocre wine. So the farming and cloning uh, is important as far as I see it as a farmer. And uh, I'm very proud of the Chardonnay. It, it's it's so good. Every year we win the gold medal or double gold. It's got everything I like in a, in a Chardonnay. It's, I used to collect French white burgundies for years before I became a a Chardonnay, and I recently did a, an interview, and they asked me what appellation was I inspired by when I was making the Chardonnay, and I had to be honest and say, well, it's actually France because um, white burgundies are incredible. And I opened up a 2003 out of our library the other day Chardonnay. Um, it was incredible, and it's 16 years old or 15 and a half years old. So I make Chardonnays that will last if you sell them properly. That's kind of important, um, and uh, I'm very proud of the Chardonnay. I, I, I love it. It's, it's delicious. It, it is delicious. You know, I, I, I had somebody, uh, I have a customer who comes into our, our wine bar and she only drinks Chardonnay. And we were getting painfully low on the kinds of Chardonnays that she likes and the shipment had not come in yet. And so instead I said, let me let me pour you a white burgundy instead. You're going to really love this. And she goes, no, I only drink Chardonnay. <laughs> Folks, white burgundy is Chardonnay. <laughs> If you see, yeah. and that's an important point, by the way, if you're out at a wine store, you know, you might want to try some white, what you see uh, called white burgundy. It's Chardonnay and it's really made right. beautifully. Usually, you know, they do a great job. My guest is Tom Rodriguez. Yeah. He's a yeah. very, very famous artist, by the way. We're going to talk about that next. But the one thing that I think most people don't know about Tom Rodriguez, they know he's an artist and that he was responsible for, you know, some of the most iconic wine labels in the business. We'll talk about that toward the end of the show. But what a lot of people don't know is he is down with the pigs. He is down in the slop. And uh, we're going to talk about that next on Grape Encounters Radio with one of the finest winemakers on planet Earth and a very fine fella who, by the way, just got engaged. He just got engaged. Can I say that on the radio? Can I? I think you can. I think I just did. (laughs) Okay. We'll be back with Tom, Tom Rodriguez of Art Divino right after this. While you're listening to the commercials, you know, just Google Art Divina and look at their label. It's very cool. Back with more Grape Encounters right after this. We've got to take a breather for a minute or two. Don't go away. Remember, if we don't let the wine breathe, it's impossible for the show to be done in good taste. In Greek mythology, we learn the mysterious connection between walnuts and wine. When Dionysus, the god of wine, fell in love with Princess Caria of Laconia, her sisters tried to prevent the romance, so Dionysus turned them into rocks. He also turned his beloved Caria into a walnut tree. She was, after all, a hard nut to crack. At mmorganics.com in Paso Robles, California, walnuts and wine is the ultimate love story. You'll flip over their 100% organic port-style dessert wines and organic heirloom walnut products, including sprouted snacking walnuts in five awesome flavors, irresistible raw organic walnut butter, 
free trade chocolate-covered walnuts. And for bakers, MM Organics produces 100% gluten-free walnut flour, estate walnut oil, and of course, their crazy delicious raw walnuts. Get all their products online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. The Central Coast of California is world-renowned for exceptional wines, but it's also one of the most vibrant and alluring travel destinations in America because the wide range of things to see and do here is absolutely astonishing. From stunning beaches to breathtaking hiking trails to world-class dining, artisan craftswork, and so much more, California's Central Coast is addictive. For those visiting this magical region, there's no better place to call home base than the city of Atascadero. Atascadero is perfectly centered in the middle of everything you'll want to see and do while you're here. A true slice of Americana. The locals here are eager to welcome you, and the accommodations are plentiful, comfortable, and affordable. Atascadero is a 365 days a year destination with mild winter weather and mostly sunny days, even when the rest of the country is bundled up. For more information about the warm and welcoming town of Atascadero, log on to visitatascadero.com. Discover the California Central Coast at visitatascadero.com. Welcome back to Grape Encounters Radio. After 10 years and 500 episodes, David has become very comfortable with breaking the rules, as you'll see momentarily, which is all well and good as long as he doesn't break our expensive glasses. And we are back with Grape Encounters Radio, and today's subjects, subjects are Pinot prizes, pigs, and packaging, and nobody better to put those four incongruous thoughts together than Tom Rodriguez, the amazing artist, by the way, who was responsible for the iconic label on the Farniente wine bottle. But uh, just as iconic, the labels on Art Divino, that's the wine that he makes. And man, he's been racking up the the awards. He's a renaissance man in the truest sense. And and we're going to talk about something completely uh, not wine related. At the, well, it's we're going to relate it to wine because this is one of the things that, you know, if you ever are watching Jeopardy and the subject is things nobody knows about Tom Rodriguez. This would be the subject. <laughs> Tom's a pig Tom's a pig farmer. You are a pig farmer, dude. Oh man, I'm telling you. It's you want to know how it started? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, a buddy of mine was raising these um very exotic pigs. They're Mangalista pigs and they originated in Hungary and Austria. They're a long-haired curly pig. Uh, they look like a, a lamb or a pig's in in sheep's clothing. They're very curly long hair and they're actually known for their fat content and their marbled meat. They actually serve it at the French Laundry in in Napa Valley. So, he said, you want a couple of pigs? And I've got 164 acres here. And I thought, sure, I can handle a couple of pigs. We have a lot of wild pigs that live up here. So I took two pigs and he says, hey, I got to get rid of more. Do you want some more? And I said, oh, okay, I'll have a couple, two more. Well, it turns out there was a couple of boars and a couple of sows. And then within a year, I had 19 pigs. Oh, no. And you've heard the expression, breed like rabbit. <laughs> yeah, breed like rabbits. Well, it really is breed like pigs. Their gestation period is three months, three weeks, and three days. So they basically can have great grandchildren the same year. It oh. happens that quickly. Holy smoke but, um i'm a big fan of i know i'm a big fan of charcuterie and 
And um, not only is the Manglista pig meat incredible, and for all your vegetarian friends, I'm sorry to keep telling you about this, but it is incredible meat. The bacon is out of this world. Uh, the white fat is uh, used as lardo, used for cooking. But I love charcuterie, and I have a good friend who's a charcuterist in Petaluma, and he actually makes charcuterie with my cowboy red wine and um, my late harvest wine. So he, he marinates the meat and then, uh, you know, pancettas and kept um, a number of different types of salamis, some spice salamis and some nicely dry aged, which go really well in the taste room with cheese and wine. And, and so there, that's it started off as a hobby. Well, as it turns out, this lovely woman I'm engaged to, she's a nurse, but a Cordon Bleu graduate and a very outdoors lady. She, her dream was to quit nursing and get into charcuterie. So I took her out to the big pen. I said, well, here's your homework, baby. And uh, so <laughs> together now we are venturing into to the charcuterie world and uh, you never know what's going to happen in this world that we live in but it's fantastic and the pigs are, we'll see out of two sows we had nine new babies born so uh, we've got a new uh, crop coming on and they're very smart animals they're uh, they have a wonderful five acre pasture where they um, I feed them organic feed and they also do a little rooting and eat the acorns and such and uh, walk up and down the hill so it's nicely marbled meat and uh, they grow to about 10 10 to 12 months and then they're ready for harvest and they um it's it's been a sort of a, an accident how this happened but it's turning out to be a really fun um opportunity of using the land up here and we grow our own vegetables and raise our own protein and i have chickens and and we're going to be raising rabbits as well so it's sort of a, a fun sidebar to the wine and art world um and uh, Teresa, my love, is uh, is very excited about it. And so here we go. <laughs> so what's really interesting about this is, you know, we've we've heard for years about Kobe beef. And I know up in Canada, I, I interviewed some folks up there that were feeding their cows a gallon of wine a day in their feed. They would just saturate the feed. Wow. And it was a but your pigs actually feed off of your grape skins, do they not? I saw you. I saw a picture of you offloading. It was a video, actually, of you offloading, you know, these crushed grape skins into the the pig pen. That's correct, because we take our um, white grapes, which is the Chardonnay uh, Symphony and Flora, which we end up having a few tons of, of the skins because we just press the juice off. We don't ferment our white wines with the skins. And then the skins are recycled to be feed for the pigs. And they love it. And uh, we take we take a big tractor up there and we put in a yard at a time and they devour these things. It's like candy for them. So um, all through uh, mid-September to about mid-October, part of their feed is uh, grape skins. Now, are you, you don't have any aversion to the, the whole slaughter thing. Do you have somebody that does that for you? Is that your job? How, how does that work? Well, I was raised with uh, two other brothers and a father, and we got our um, went to hunter safety school and gun school when we were young boys. And so we, I grew up hunting, and I learned how to butcher animals at a young age. And so I've been butchering the wild pigs up here for years. And But to do this commercially, you have to have your um, – through a USDA-approved um, slaughterhouse. Uh, otherwise, you can't legally sell the meat. So 
uh, local, actually in Sonoma County, our next door neighbor, uh, we have a, a, a slaughterhouse down there that that uh, works with us. I'm actually, um, I, I'm, I'm. This is probably not the right choice of words, but I'm pleased to hear the term slaughter because uh, here on the Central Coast, uh, they have taken on the more politically correct term of harvesting meat, and I'm, and I think the pigs feel better yes. about it down here that they're getting harvested and not slaughtered. But in the end, that you know, they wind up being <laughs> they wind up being bacon, pork loin, and charcuterie all the same. Yes. Yeah, it's terminology. Uh, harvesting is what we use when we're talking about them in the tasting room. But uh, when we're just sitting here around the bo- uh, around the table drinking a glass of wine, we slaughter them. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're talking to a whole lot of people right now, Tom. <laughs> you're not being politically correct, exactly. Hey, I got to tell you something. You, you know, you, you mentioned something, by the way, about I, I got to get off pigs and onto shrimp for a second, okay? I got to tell you something I did, okay? I, okay. I cooked for our wine club recently, and I did sous vide jumbo shrimp. And you're familiar with sous vide, right? Well, you no, know. that's an oxymoron. That's an oh, the jum- I'm sorry, yeah, the jumbo. Uh, did you say jumbo shrimp is an oxymoron? You cut out there. Yes, yeah, it's yeah, the jumbo shrimp. I mean, I love that. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, so I cooked them sous vide style, which means under vacuum, and basically you you put your ingredients in the shrimp in, and then you you vacuum pack it, and then you put it in a very carefully temperature controlled water bath, and it's kind of the new thing. It's not new, but it's new to you know the general public. But what I did was I cooked the shrimp in your red. Well, it's a it's it's you call it a red dessert wine. It's kind of a port, okay? With with smoked paprika, that oh. smoked paprika, some scallions, a little bit of garlic, and a bunch of butter. I sealed them up. I cooked them for a half an hour at a really low temperature. That was the best thing I ever tasted. It's the other than just drinking that dessert wine. This is its second highest and best purpose. Just so you know. Wow. People freaked out. I was going to use. Wow, that, I was. I was going to use sherry. That sounds delicious. I'm going to. I was going to use sherry, and then I, I said, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going the distance. I'm going to go pull the best red dessert wine I got off the shelves. I grabbed yours, and I made this, and people flipped out. They flipped out. Nutty. <laughs> it sounds delicious. I want to try that. I'll make it for you. I'll make it for you. Or, you know, maybe okay. I'll just, or I'll make it for you. Or maybe I'll make it. I'll freeze it and I'll send it to you. But I don't know if it would be as good. But you're going to be down here shortly. We're going to be uh, making an announcement because we're going to get you more involved in the wine bar down here uh, very, very soon. So listen, uh, Tom, we're going to take a little bit of break. We got a little bit more time with Tom Rodriguez, the wonder kid of Art of Vino. And we're going to talk about art and vino in just a second with Tom Rodriguez. Hey, Google him. You know, the guy's got... He's a he's a really major major force in the art world. He has done some amazing stained glass work over his career. He has done some amazing baseball stuff. And uh, I'll tell you what, his baseball pieces of some of the most iconic players in baseball are just they're just to not not to be believed. They're just awesome. And um, but he also does wine labels, including his own. And I, I want to talk about that because wine labels are often a pet peeve of mine, Tom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, are you are you ready to go out on? I a understand. Li- are are you ready to go out on a limb with me on this one? I'll I'll walk with you, David. I'll walk with you. <laughs> okay. All right. Back with more grape encounters. Right. Right after. 
right after these really super important messages. And they are. They're important. Sometimes drinking wine makes you just want to curl up in a comfy chair and dream about puppy dogs, faraway places, and other happy thoughts. Or you can just enjoy that cuvee in your glass and lose yourself in the conversation on Grape Encounters Radio. It seems like a day doesn't go by that someone doesn't tell me how lucky I am to be able to taste the multitude of wines that I get to try as part of my job. And while that certainly is true, what is also true is that a great number of wines that I do taste just don't cut it. That's why it gives me so much pleasure to tell you about the wines from Peak Ranch, made in the San Ynez Valley on the central coast of California. As exciting as these wines are, I'm especially proud of the fact that they're produced by my oldest friend of all time, John Wagner, along with his charming wife, Jill. John was always the smartest kid in school, and I was always just a tad bit jealous of his determination to be the best. So when I found out that he was the producer of these utterly fantastic wines, I wasn't the least bit surprised. From their remarkably elegant Pinots to their perfectly balanced Chardonnay and luscious Syrahs, it's no surprise that the wines produced at Peak Ranch are simply as good as it gets, and they have the scores to prove it. Log on to peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. You can buy their wines online, which means it'll be the best time you ever spend on the Internet. Go to peakranch.com. Ten years ago, I created Grape Encounters Radio while living in breathtaking Lake Arrowhead. Perched about an hour above the Southern California metropolis in the majestic San Bernardino National Forest. Lake Arrowhead is a place where wine lifestyle flourishes, imaginations run wild, and people come from around the world to discover a more peaceful and re-energizing way of life. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Lynn B. Wilson, a bona fide leader in resort real estate sales. From charming alpine cottages to stunning estates on the shores of shimmering Lake Arrowhead, Lynn B. Wilson and Associates have been changing lives for decades. If you truly want to live on top of the world, Lynn B. Wilson and Associates can show you how. They'll even host you in luxury accommodations while you explore the limitless possibilities. Log on to lynnbwilson.com. That's lynnbwilson.com. Live the life you imagine. People often ask, why hasn't someone tarred and feathered Grape Encounters host David Wilson for breaking so many of the old rules? Simple. No one likes the old rules. Long before I ever knew my guest today, I knew his work, but I didn't know it was his work. Does that make any sense? I always thought, you know, the one wine bottle out there that was the most interesting label, the one that you could just, no matter where you were, you could stand 50 feet away from that bottle and you knew exactly that that was a bottle of Farniente. And, you know, a very high-end wine, really well-crafted wine. And before Tom was a winemaker, Tom Rodriguez, my guest today, he was an artist first. And he created that label, uh, Tom, 40 years ago? 
Yes, actually, nineteen. It was for the nineteen seventy nine uh, Chardonnay vintage. It was the first Farniente label produced. Now, is it true that they they paid you a humble fee for the art, and then said they'd give you a case of wine every year as long as you're alive? <laughs> yes, because I was a glass artist at the time, and I had done a bunch of glass work for Gil and Beth Nickel, and Gil was starting this wine project. So I had no idea what to charge for a label. So I charged him a nominal fee and he wanted a label that people would grab off the shelf. So I did that one and it sort of has an Art Nouveau glass-like look to it. And at the time he said, well, this is such a great deal. I will give you 10 cases a year for life. So I, and then two years later, I designed the the Fardiente Cabernet label, which included wine. And then I moved on to the Dolce dessert wine. And then I moved on to the Nickel and Nickel label and then the en route Pinot and Chardonnay label and then just two years ago did the Bella Union label so five of the Fardiente family labels I've produced all five of them so, how so many, I have a nice seller how many how many <laughs> cases of wine are you getting a year from these guys can, can you disclose that well I was still, um, I can and it was a variety now it's because it's not just the Chardonnay and Cabernet so I get a, a nice selection um, anywhere from five to ten cases of each of their varietal of each of their wine Holy smoke! These aren't cheap wines, dude. Yeah, that was the that was the best deal you ever made, right there. That was the best deal you ever made. I'm, <laughs> that's unbelievable. I know, but, but yeah, t- so t- t- tell me what irritates you when you go into a wine shop or you see a, a long shelf of wines as an artist. And and by the way, you know what you were doing with Far Niente was definitely off the beaten path forty years ago, but still oh, very elegant yeah. and, and classy. But when you walk into a wine shop, do you get irritated? with these wines that try to create a personality for themselves that may or may not be in that bottle? Well, because I was criticized a lot for the Farniente label, because most labels looked very French at the time in the 70s, when there was a rendering of the winery and then the name of the winery and the varietal and the and the, the date, uh, that was about it. So the, the Farniente label was considered very gaudy for some people and very beautiful for others. And as an artist, I'd rarely criticize other artwork because art is in the eye of the beholder. But when I do walk into a wine shop and I see the, how labels have advanced over the years, over the decades, it was frustrating frustrating is to look at some labels and you don't even know what varietal is and or the producer because the artwork or the shape or the die cut or whatever of the label is distracting. So it's it's somewhat confusing as opposed to being more interesting where you want to want to pick it up and look at it and really observe it. But wine labels today are so diverse. It is, it's almost like walking into an art gallery. I mean, there's so many different styles of, of wine labels now and is different it, looks and whether whether it's baked on the glass. Is it good or bad, though? Or whether it's a paper. I, I, don't, I wouldn't say good or bad. It is. It just is. You know, I don't know if it's bad. I mean, what would bad be? That it upsets you and you and you want to walk away from it? And good is that it want, you want to buy it? I mean, it's sort of like, like I said, it's it's like art. What's good art and what's bad art? It's sort of in the beholder. Okay, you know, well, what's more important is what's in the bottle. But the, the idea of, of a wine label is to grab your attention. Yes, but here's where I get very upset. It's when I look at the label and the label says to me, I'm a, you know, I'm a unique wine that is so different and so amazing and has superpowers. And then I open it up and it's just some ordinary, you know, tanker truck wine. 
somebody got clever with the label to get us to buy it only to be disappointed. And I see that a lot. And, and a lot of times, you know, the labels that are created for wine are there for the sole purpose of somebody buying that wine to give to somebody else probably because it relates to some aspect of their personality. There are a few wines that I can think of like that. And, and the wine is irrelevant. It's only about the label. And the wine might as well just be styrofoam in the bottle. <laughs> Well, you have a very good point, but that that point that you made is is exactly the direction I got from Gil Nickel when I did Farniente. Is he said, "Look, I'm a, a new newbie in this business. I'm from Oklahoma. I'm buying a, a, a state in Napa Valley. Nobody knows who I am, so I want a label that's going to jump off the shelf and land in somebody's hand. If they buy it because of the label and then they drink it, they're going to come back." So he had confidence in his winemaking to do that, but the very purpose of the Farniente label was to be unique enough to have somebody grab it off the shelf and go, I'll try that. That's beautiful. And I think that's what you succeeded at doing. So it, it does not misrepresent itself. Right. Well, thank you. There are some wines that I've bought or have been given that have a very attractive label. I've opened it and went, are you kidding? This is horrible. So I see your point. You know, sometimes it's just there to sell the wine All and right. not necessarily be a good wine. All right. So Tom, Tom Rodriguez yeah. is an artist who is not eager to criticize other artists, lest they maybe criticize him. But he is an amazing artist, both on canvas, on glass or in glass, uh, in wine, in charcuterie, so many things. You have achieved so much in your life, Tom. We got to cut it short. That's it. We're done. Well, buddy, I'm going to come down and see you soon. So um, I'll bring some charcuterie and I want some of that shrimp. <laughs> I will make you that shrimp. It's going to be good. Okay, Tom Rodriguez, if you want to know more about Tom, his wines are Artevino. It's A-R-T-E-V-I-N-O. What's the website? Artevinowine.com yeah. or maplecreekwinery.com. Okay, so it's artevino.com. Yeah. Maple or... Creek Winery or maplecreekwinery.com. Okay, all right. Hey, gang, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters. By the way, you know, if you come to the Grape Encounters Emporium, and again, I, I, I did not want to do an infomercial, not intending to do that, but we care the great wines from around the world and we carry the great wines of Tom Rodriguez and Artavino so you can always taste them at our place in beautiful Atascadero, California. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. Back here next week as we move on to show number 503. Thank you, Tom Rodriguez. Thanks, buddy. We'll see you soon. Well, this episode of Grape Encounters is in the bag. It's hard to imagine you haven't missed some episodes, so why not hunt them down at GrapeEncounters.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast sites. Grape Encounters Studios are located in beautiful Atascadero, California. That's Central Coast wine country, baby. Come visit us. But be warned, you won't want to leave. That's okay, we have a spare bedroom. But it's 55 degrees and full of old bottles.